0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. MorganStanley.com. Welcome back to these special podcast episodes about One Small Step, our effort to bring people together across the political divides. I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. This is part two of the special. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, we recommend you do that before you listen to this episode. Let's return now to my conversation with NPR's Elise Hugh.
1: One thing I've been meaning to ask you is actually about the process of matching these One Small Step participants since they do start out as strangers, right?
0: Sure. So this has been evolving. Basically, when you volunteer to be part of One Small Step, we look for Something that people have in common and as time goes on, we're looking for more and more kind of visceral experiences in people's lives that they share. So maybe um, both uh, participants recently lost a parent or uh, both participants went through a divorce Uh, and then we have the, the participants write brief bios of themselves. And then we actually have people read the other person's bio so that they're kind of walking in the footsteps of that other person. So you would read the bio of your partner before the interview starts.
1: Well, let's hear an excerpt from another one of those conversations. We'll go back to the stage in Birmingham where two locals, two local residents took part in a one small step conversation with our member station, WBHM. They are Cassandra Adams and David Wilson. They're both black, but their politics... Are different.
2: Get around there okay?
1: <laughs> Thank you for taking part in one small step, but also in this follow-up conversation tonight.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And when you all do this, as Dave mentioned, you kind of give a little bit of a bio, a little bit of background about yourself. So when you filled out that part of it, what did you say about yourself? How did you describe yourself?
3: I came straight out. I'm African-American woman, married with children. Um, my faith directs everything that I do. Um, I cr- vote for who I think I want. It didn't, doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum it is. I take the lesser of the evil. And um, <laughs> that was pretty much it. David, what did you say?
4: So I don't remember exactly how I put my profile, but I did not put my race. I don't like to be defined that way. I did put, I believe, Christian constitutional conservative, and then some other stuff, and I don't remember the other. Maybe father of four or something. I am from Boston. Um, I don't like to say that down south because I get the damn Yankee thing, which is worse than (laughs) being a conservative, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Am I right? Let's listen to your conversation. Okay.
3: Let me ask you this. When you read my bio, mm-hmm. what did you think? And please be as honest as you feel comfortable because n- nothing um, would bother me.
4: So the first part, my mind kicked into stereotype, which is mm-hmm. probably dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. End of story. <laughs> Second part was intriguing because you said something along the lines of an open mind. I thought, well, this would be interesting.
3: When I read your bio, I just thought you were a white man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought
4: I was going to come in
3: here and
4: just. I don't like, even know okay. what it was. I don't even I, remember I, what it was. And that,
3: that's what's so interesting to me is that I'm just stereotype. like. Stereotype. Right, that's exactly right. So I have to admit it. And I appreciate you receiving yeah. that and allowing me to admit my stereotype. Because when you walked in the door and you stood up and introduced myself, I was like, oops, oops, oops. <laughs> I don't feel threatened. I hope you don't feel threatened. Um, what, once we leave this, this conversation, I hope, I believe we'll have other conversations with others, maybe revisit. maybe your wife and my husband and four of us can get together and continue a yeah. conversation. But my point is that, what are we afraid of?
1: I love that conversation. And I saw you cracking up with the rest of us. Well, you did not have
3: to, as- to share with David that you made the wrong assumption, but you chose to. Why? Personal accountability. <laughs> I could not live with myself um, yeah. with that stereotype and teaching students and others about having an open mind and all of this kind of <laughs> stuff. And I'm just like, uh. <laughs> David, what
1: about you? Is it fair to say that you made some assumptions too?
4: Just a little bit. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yes, I did. But um, I think we probably hit it off right at the beginning, and so we had a a very fun conversation.
1: That's David Wilson and Cassandra Adams, two participants in One Small Step, live on stage in Birmingham, Alabama. And Dave, it's so fun hearing them laugh about the assumptions they made when they read each other's bios at first. Uh, But clearly it uh, takes a certain kind of person, I imagine, to – Volunteer to sit down for a conversation like this.
0: Well, I, I think that there are people on the fringes on on both sides who are not open to this. I mean, we've done a lot of uh, polling, and there's you know there's five, six, seven percent on either end, on the left and the right, who are not interested in the stories of others who are just dead set in their beliefs. But I think that there's this broad swath in the middle who are open to. Seeing the humanity in people who they may disagree with politically and are hungry for this and see the danger of the dehumanization that's going on in the in the country right now,
1: and Dave, in these one small step conversations, you encourage people to avoid talking about politics, right. But inevitably, politics do come up, right?
0: Sometimes it comes up. I mean, we have ground rules for participants about, being respectful, not shouting, not talking over each other. So if people do want to talk about politics and it's up to them, then they talk to one another about that in a thoughtful and respectful way.
1: We actually wanted to see how a one-small-step conversation might go with two people who talk about politics – For a living. You know,
5: voter suppression really isn't a thing in the 21st century. Neither is voter fraud.
1: The first is conservative commentator Eric Erickson. You may recognize that name from CNN or Fox. Yeah. And he has his own syndicated radio show.
5: There has never been an election uh, where voters were so suppressed that they could not vote. To the extent there were lines and there were problems, they happened in counties controlled by who? Not Republicans, Democrats.
1: On the other side of the aisle, we reached out to Latasha Brown, a name who's been in the news a lot lately. That, that I, myself, I went to the polls and it took me hours. From the last she is an activist go. and co-founder of the Black Voters Matter Fund. This is Latasha on MSNBC, you're hearing.
2: And it's disproportionately impacting African-American voters and people of color. And so we have to really recognize how that structural racism is a part of the voter suppression. And Latasha Brown and Eric Erickson are kind of the talking
1: heads that you would expect to see arguing, Yeah. but that was not the vibe when they sat down a few months ago face-to-face for a one-small-step conversation.
5: So tell me a little bit about yourselves, because we're just meeting for the first time. We are
2: just meeting for the first time, so great meeting you. You too. Um, I'm a native of Alabama, so while I currently... As the conversation goes on, they eventually get around to talking about politics. You said that your your parents were Democrats, Mm -hmm. um, and now you are a conservative radio well, host. So it, I'm just interested. In, what was your path? And what does that mean? Yeah, right. you not, I'm, I'm and as Eric
1: talks about his conservative politics, he mentions that back in 2016, he didn't support Donald Trump.
5: And we had friends turn their back on us. We had people show up at our house to threaten us because I didn't want to vote for mm-hmm. the guy. Uh, my And Dave, even though
1: Eric has, has since decided to support the president water and Latasha actively does, 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 does not, they eventually agreed on something pretty
2: fundamental. I feel like we're caught up in this partisan we are and we can't get out of it. And it's so just, it's, it's like we're dealing with like it's mm-hmm. the Super Bowl. Right. Which team are you on? And it's not we the people.
5: I just I don't know what either political party stands for anymore other I than agree. the acquisition of power and, and rewarding their question? friends and punishing the other side. And I resent like hell that I've got to pick a side right now when no side really reflects who I am or what I believe in. And...
2: So, you know what? I It's really interesting because I, I feel the same exact way. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel I am a political junkie. That's who I am. But like you, I am, come on, y'all. What, you know, like, right. when is this going to end? Dave, when you hear that, what do you think?
0: Well, I, I, you know, the civility almost belies belief, right? But, you know, when we were on stage in Birmingham, there were moments of tension. Here's a little bit of
1: that. I want to ask you a question that I asked the crowd earlier, which is, have the two of you had meaningful, lengthy conversations with folks um, whose politics widely differ from your own? Eric, I'll start with you.
5: Yeah, you know, I actually have a better time... And enjoy the company more of friends of mine with whom I disagree politically these days. Uh, One, because it's what I do for a living. But two, because I, I find that you can find other things to talk about. And it seems like more people maybe are at the point where they need to connect in their community instead of building that online community that looks and thinks exactly like them. And I hope... Uh, that people will return to actually thinking about their next-door neighbor instead of having their Facebook friends or their social media group, they'll actually go out and see the person next door to them and see them as a person? Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, I think it is a little nuanced. I think we also have to be honest. For me, uh-huh. I'm really thinking about that question because I think there's some ways that, yes, there have been people Who I've had political differences with, but I think there is also this piece around people who I've had value differences with, um, and that's been extremely difficult for me. You know, the end of the arc of racism is genocide, and so it's one thing to have a political belief that is just different, you know, but at the end of the day, if your politics say that I don't have the right to exist. That's a different kind of meaning for me. And so where there is a undermining of the recognition of my humanity, that's beyond political differences.
1: Political organizer Latasha Brown there with talk show host Eric Erickson. Dave, there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. Um, but first, how would you respond to what we just heard from Latasha?
0: I mean, I think what Latasha says resonates so strongly I mean even more so today than it did when we were on stage in in Birmingham mm. the you, you know look this is what one small step is all about it's remembering our shared humanity by by listening and what happened here is that Latasha and Eric recognized that and sat down and had the courage to engage with each other as people and be vulnerable and speak their truths. Uh, the important thing is that we always keep in mind the the humanity of the person that we're speaking with.
1: One other thing I want to ask you about is that on stage, we heard Eric talking about social media silos, Facebook groups that we live in now. And I'm guessing that all types of media are arguably making your job and the bridging mission of One Small Step
0: harder. Well, I mean, I think that we're, you know, there's a multi-billion dollar, you know, contempt industrial (laughs) complex that that we're up against. And the, the great paradox of our time is that we live in this age where technology uh, has the potential to bring us closer together, but in so many ways at so many times it ends up driving us farther apart. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru, featuring the 2021 Subaru Crosstrek, with standard symmetrical all wheel drive and an increase in available horsepower for outstanding traction and capability in all kinds of weather and terrain. The Crosstrek also features award winning safety technology for extra awareness and confidence. Love is out there. Find it in a Subaru Crosstrek. Learn more at Subaru.com.
1: Welcome back. It's One Small Step. I'm Elise Hugh from NPR with Dave Isay from StoryCorps. Hey, Dave. Hi, Elise. So, we've been listening to conversations from a live stage event that we recorded in Birmingham, Alabama, all about creating space for conversation between people who might normally prefer to shout at each other. Dave, I want to share another interview with you on this very subject. I talked with Amanda Ripley, an author and journalist who, for several years, has been studying the nature of conflict, and she's been reporting on people who take steps to bridge differences. Yeah. So we called up Amanda and talked about how we got here, how the media can play a role in exacerbating and exaggerating points of conflict, like you mentioned.
6: Like, nobody in America is like, man, I just wish there was more arguing on TV. That (laughs) is something I need more of. But, um... In all of this is an assumption that what people need is simplicity, right? That doesn't work in high conflict. Like in high conflict, people need complexity to be revived because we're mm-hmm. in a time of false simplicity. And so this is why we need to design different shows and formats and journalism so that they can get to this. And and people will say, you know, you know, I have friends who work at CNN and they say, well, we don't have time. But the truth is, it doesn't take that much more time to ask different questions and. Asking different questions, I think, is a hugely important way to get underneath the conflict. And and we need to do more of that. You mentioned that we're in a period of high conflict. How do you define high conflict? High conflict is when regular conflict escalates to a point where both sides start to feel like the other side is crazy. They are baffled by each other. Uh. And when you make these identities really powerful and you have political leaders who play them up who are sort of conflict entrepreneurs is mm. the term of art then it's not that hard to really turn neighbor on neighbor there's so little trust and there's so many distortions happening in how we perceive each other that it gets really hard to see the options we make big mistakes in our assumptions about each other and there's a ton of research on how that's happening in the United States between partisans like we we think we know each other's heart and we don't
1: You have really sort of encouraged us to not only make the narratives more complex, to find areas of nuance, but also to ask better questions of one another. So I want to know what are better questions that we could ask of one another,
6: whether they are strangers or even our loved ones. The number one place to start is always with the personal, you know where did your beliefs about abortion come from? Like, when did you first even hear about abortion? Like, do you remember? Like, how old were you? You know, Uh start personal. And then are there words they use that surprise you? Like, do they say that something made them feel sick to their stomach and you didn't expect such a strong word? And then it's like you dig into those. What does that mean? Like, say more about that. Where are you torn on this issue? what do you want to know about the other side? Like, what is most mystifying to you? And what do you want them to know about you? Just to give you a quick example, I was talking to someone who does um, divorce mediation. She was talking about a couple who was just like at each other's throats about who was going to get the Legos. Like, (laughs) who, you know, they're dividing their property. But what she was able to do is to get to what was underneath that, right? And what it was is eventually they were able to say that, they felt like wherever those Legos went is where the child's affection went. Like those were the oh. favorite toy, you know. And so, so asking questions that kind of get to that. Well,
1: I want to kind of just challenge the premise that we're working from, which is reaching across the divide is a worthwhile objective because there are some who would say that they don't think it's right to try and reach across the divide right now, that rather it's a time to fight, right, and mm-hmm. a time to win a battle for the soul of the country. Right. So the people that you've observed trying to still bridge and reach across divides, what are they understanding that those of us who are taking a harder
6: line not understanding? Hmm. There is a time to fight. I do think anger is important. But um, the biggest argument, you know, for having conversations that leave your decency intact is because it's the only thing that works. If we want to persuade, and change each other's minds. There is no way to do that without making each other feel heard. And there's some practical benefits of it too. The value of having relationships across divides, particularly in communities, is like you can prevent conflict from metastasizing. So when you see like what happened in Charlottesville at the rally there, it's very important that there be relationships in a community before violence happens. Because then you can contain the reaction to the violence. The biggest danger of political violence is that it causes more political violence. Yeah. So, you know, we are in this country together. We're married to each other. Like, we cannot annihilate one another. You know, we have children together. <laughs> like, this is, you, you can get divorced, but you're still going to have to deal with each other.
1: Journalist Amanda Ripley there with a reminder of the bottom line and kind of the reason you created this project. Right, Dave?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think so much of what what Amanda said was exactly on point. You know, the questions have to be framed with respect and dignity. And since over this summer, you know, we we see it again, the the danger of not having personal relationships with people in our communities and how the country can um, go up like a tinderbox if we don't have the right kind of communication with one another.
1: And you know, another thing that's come out in almost all these conversations we've had is the importance of complexity, right? Um, allowing people to talk about how they feel misunderstood in the first place. Absolutely. And to know they're being heard when they say that. So one last time, let's go back to the stage and hear from two people from Birmingham, Nicole Watkins and Austin Solentrop. We'll hear them on stage in just a moment, but first we played their pre-recorded One Small Step conversation for the audience.
7: My wife and I, for years, uh, led youth group in our church. So every year we would participate in the the March for Life and – Somehow, because I would be outward with this idea that I'd like to see a world where abortion is no longer an option, that because of that that one stance, I'm now like somehow this radical, evangelical, avid Trump supporter. I see. And it's like the thing that drives my belief there is also the same thing that drives my belief that we should take care of the abandoned refugee at the border, that we should take care of the poor and sick in our own neighborhoods. But like, that's not the public persona of what somebody who goes to D.C. to march for that is.
8: That's actually exactly why I wanted to do this. And I will fully admit in this conversation to having had that bias before. Yeah. right? And it's also worth mentioning, full disclosure, please don't run out of the room. I work for Planned Parenthood. And
7: oh, I do- no, I can't talk to you anymore. <laughs> well- we have a policy against that. <laughs> so that gets my blood going a little bit. None of us are simple enough to be just thrown in a bucket. Like we're God, we're all too darn complicated for that, and I think we can all do a better job of of, of realizing the the nuance in people there.
8: Nuance, I want on a bumper sticker. I, <laughs> I, 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 if we can remember that when we have those conversations with each other, I think we'll get somewhere.
1: All right, let's welcome them: Nicole Watkins and Austin Sullentrap. seats at the end. Welcome. to my living room. Thank
7: you. This is delightful.
1: <laughs> so, Austin, what surprised you um, about meeting Nicole in the conversation? <laughs>
7: oh wow. Um, <laughs> what was surprising and so pleasant was how easy it was to talk. You know, well, you've heard it a million times. It, it, we, we weren't that different in what we were trying. What was frustrating us, what we were struggling with, the topics were a little bit different. But I think what was surprising was how easy it was to get to a place of comfort so quickly.
1: And I liked how you brought up that because of your abortion stance, mm-hmm. there's those who make other assumptions about you. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that?
7: Yeah. I mean, anybody who takes a public stance on an issue that's controversial runs the risk of, well, making it easy for people to see what you stand for. Right. And yeah, I, I checked that box. I absolutely check that box. I don't check the select all box.
1: How has this and your experience with One Small Step changed the way that you approach those who you might make these instant judgments about or those who you know are politically different (laughs) from you?
8: I think the big thing that changed for me is, and part of the reason I wanted to do this was that I kind of existed in this bubble and I didn't, we always talk about the bubble, right? Like you have this political bubble of people that you spend time with. But since I did One Small Step, I'm actually, I'm working now at Disability Rights and Resources in Birmingham. So I work mostly with people with disabilities in Alabama and I go to rural counties and I spend time with people of all kinds of political persuasions because people with disabilities are every demographic, but it speaks to the nuance that we were talking about too, that I can sit down and have a conversation. And I think that what I try to do, and Austin really helped me with this, is when I'm talking to someone, figure out why they believe what they believe. And remember that these are people with human stories and families and trauma. And, and frankly, even when they make me angry, right? Like even when I am really frustrated with some of these people in my head, I'm just sitting there thinking, they're not trying to hurt me, You know, and and that may be a side effect of some of their political beliefs, but they're not intentionally trying to come hurt me and harm me and the people that I care about. And I think that it feels so deeply personal to me, even though I know that's not necessarily fair. So that's kind of how I've learned to approach those conversations. And it's made a difference.
1: Austin, Nicole, thank you guys so much for participating and for coming back up here tonight. That's from our One Small Step event on stage in Birmingham, Alabama. And Dave, before we go, can we talk about the future of this project? Sure. Especially now, after such a punishing year, what are the next steps for One Small Step?
0: So, Elise, you know, it's a tough time. The pandemic, the economy, um, the um, protests over racism and policing, the incredibly contentious election. Uh, It feels like interventions like this are just, Critical to the future of our democracy, so we're um, in the process now of a major expansion of of one small step, um, which includes remote interviewing, so people can have these conversations with people across the divides from their homes anywhere in the country. You know, we we think of one small step a little bit like a light that begins to seep under the door in a dark room. Uh, it it may not be much, but it allows our eyes to adjust, and and just maybe we can begin to to see each other again.
1: A lovely image. Dave Isay is the founder of StoryCorps and One Small Step. Dave, I've so enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Elise. Me too.
1: And to play us out, here's a little more musical inspiration from the end of our night on stage in Burma. Well, you say
4: you got the blue. You got holes in both your
3: shoes.
4: Yeah. Feel alone and confused. You got to keep on. I want
1: to say thanks to everyone at NPR who helped make this show happen. Franklin Cater, Neva Grant, James Willits, Hannah Crotty, Allie Prescott, and Claire Lombardo. Also, our friends at StoryCorps, Katie Brooke, Stacey Todd, Joanna DeFore. At WBHM, Chuck Holmes, Audrey Atkins, and Michelle Little. And extra special thanks to this fantastic band, Jimmy Hall, and Southern Culture Revival, who we recorded live on stage at the Alice Stevens Center in Birmingham. I'm Elise Hugh, and this has been One Small Step.
6: One Small Step, courageous conversations across a growing divide, a special hour from NPR and StoryCorps, was made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.
0: Thanks for listening to these special podcast episodes about One Small Step. We'd love for you to participate and join the growing ranks of Americans who believe in listening to and learning from each other. Find out how to sign up at StoryCorps.org. For the StoryCorps podcast from NPR, I'm Dave Isay.
6: StoryCorps' One Small Step is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its work to strengthen democracy. Kate Capshaw and Steven Spielberg's The Wonder Kinder Foundation— the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Charles Koch Institute, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.